and salutations, one and all. Welcome to today's episode of Risk and Reels, where we talk about movies, and if we have time, maybe we'll talk about some cybersecurity stuff. Uh, I'm real excited to have uh, my friend and colleague, Mr. Rob Black on. Uh, Rob is the founder and uh, owner of Fractional CISO, which is a virtual CISO company. He'll tell you a little bit about what he does. Uh, Rob has been around the block quite a few times. As we say, he's got a couple of 24s under his belt. Uh, if you have seen his videos on LinkedIn, uh, you know how, how fun and interesting he is. And I think the two of us will have a great conversation. So say hello to all of our listeners, Rob. Hi, everyone. Jeffrey, thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Awesome. Uh, just want to go on record. I love your shirt. I can't really pull checks off. Uh, I am told it makes me look uh, wider than I need to look. So I'm a. Oh, maybe that's the problem. You know, I'm not going to do the diet anymore. I'll just, I'll just uh, stop wearing check shirts. Yes, we're slimming, <laughs> slimming clothes. Awesome. So uh, I think you, the listeners, will get some really good stuff. But as always, we're going to start off with a movie question. So let me, let me think. What can we do? Okay, I got one. Um, what movie? did you go into with very high expectations and found roundly disappointing? Well, it has to be a movie that wasn't recent because most movies now I go into with not high expectations, but um, all right. So let's, uh, let me think about one with like a really good director. Okay. Really good director book. I liked. Okay. So Steven Spielberg, check a book. I liked check. You got to think the movie's going to be good. Obviously. Um, the movie is Ready Player One. The book was just fantastic. It goes, you know, so basically, so I'm a child of the 80s and it kind of goes through 80s culture and it's a lot of flashback stuff and it's super fun. The movie basically takes all the fun out and just makes it really um, bland and some sort of generic culture thing. And then even the quest seemed very lame. Um, so that was that was a pretty that was a pretty sad movie. I they they could have they could have done just 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 a little bit more effort and it would have been way way better yeah i i you know <laughs> i actually saw the movie before uh, i did the book uh -huh. so i kind of saw it more as a bad movie as a vector for cool pop culture references that only people our age would get but i could definitely see that because uh, about a year and a half ago, I actually started doing audiobooks when I go out to, well, I can't call it a run. It's more like a shuffle to call uh -huh. it a run is insulting to people that actually run. But I've been doing a lot of audiobooks, and I actually did Ready Player One audiobook, and it's read by uh, Will Wheaton. Oh, nice. Who I, know, who I know has like a little bit of a bad reputation, but I happen to think he's a super cool dude. He has embraced the geek culture. I love him. And he I, I did a really too. good job reading. You know, he's, he's read um... – both of the Randall Monroe uh, books, uh, why, like XKCD how, guy, why, yep. yeah, XKCD yep. guy, the How and Why books. He's also read. So Bill Gates had a book where he read maybe like the intro, but then Will Wheaton read the rest of it. It's Will Wheaton actually is a great voice actor. I, I really like him. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll give you another one if you do audiobooks. Uh -huh. um, so uh, Stephen King's son, Joe Hill, mm -hmm. wrote a really good modern take on vampires called Nosferatu. It is read by another Star Trek person, Kate Mulgrew. Oh, she's awesome. A lot of audiobooks. 
holy cow, I lost myself in that book to the point where I walked into the middle of the street and almost got hit by a car. Unbelievable. And my son is actually doing a Star Trek cruise and she's going to be on. I'm like, you need to tell her that your dad loved that. Yeah, I just thought it was it was uh, so, so good. So he has the great best, choice. She has the best captain voice, you know, just, just very reassuring. I, yeah, I, she's one of my top captains. I, I, I liked her. I think that show got a bit of a bad rap, but uh, I, I thought that was good. Okay, so you're ready for my movie. So okay. um, also a book. Yeah. Uh, I am a huge Stephen King fan, yeah. and I have read his magnum opus, The Dark Tower, probably 10 or 12 times. Hopefully my boss won't listen to this podcast because then he'll say, well, if you're reading books 12 times, what are you doing? But <laughs> The Dark Tower movie. Now, I love Idris Elba. I love Matthew McConaughey. It was the war. It was a terrible movie, and it was a terrible movie made from a, a book. It was so disappointing, and I went into it with such not high hopes, but prayers that they would bring one of my favorite books of all time to life. And they just really just chucked it. And you know, Idris was good, McConaughey was good, but the characters were just not. Just not there. What a bummer! You know, I I did not see that one, so I guess, uh, but maybe because, oh yeah, I guess not. <laughs> yeah, there. So there's a Dark Tower subreddit, uh, and everybody makes believe that movie did not happen. Oh. Um, now the good news though is Mike Flanagan has the rights to the book with Amazon, and it looks like they're going to be doing uh, like a couple of movies with some series seasons in between because it's you know it's. Seven book, well, actually eight books if you count winning the keyhole, like four thousand. I mean, it's like a stupid long thing. I don't think you could do it justice in a movie. So I'm, I'm, I'm praying because Mike Flanagan seems to understand the, the source material. Nice. Uh, and and let's let's be fair, Rob. We could do the entire podcast talking about movies that were disappointing because the lists are just so yes. long. Yes, especially but, especially uh, recently. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, what, I, what I'm really excited, I don't know when this is going to go live, but uh, there are two movies coming out this weekend. I'm excited for both, and they both got great reviews. The Barbie okay. movie, which I know sounds cheesy. The yeah. reviews are stupendous, and I love Christopher Nolan. I am really, really excited about Oppenheimer. Oh, I, I'm excited about Oppenheimer, too. Barbie, less so, um, but uh, Oppenheimer, yeah. I am excited about. Yeah, well, the, everybody says Greta Gerwig's take on the Barbie movie is... is uh, is good. But. I was just surprised that it's a PG thirteen. You know, I'm I'm thinking they're targeting eight year old girls, and probably not a lot, yeah. a lot of people are taking eight year old girls to a PG thirteen. No, and, <laughs> and I gotta tell you, I think it's more targeted at the parents of those eight year old girls. Probably. Yeah, so, <laughs> all right, awesome. So, so I think that that actually gives me an idea for a topic, right? So, um, there's been a lot of posts on LinkedIn lately, a lot of articles about burnout, CISO burnout. Um, under underpowered, underfunded, etc. So, I think the the premise of going into a movie with high expectations and and being disappointed, I think, is is an interesting sort of comparison metaphor for the CISO job, right? CISOs go in, they think they're going to change the world, they're going to fix all the problems, and they go in and they say, "Oh well, there's no money, there's no people, there's no management buy-in," and they get frustrated and burned out. So. I think you in particular have a great perspective on that because of what you do at, at your company. So, so let's do this. Tell us a little bit about what you do at Fractional CISO and then, and then talk about what do, you, what do you hear from the people that work for you that maybe have been CISOs and we'll kind of go, go from there and see where it takes us. Yeah, sounds, sounds great. So 
We help mid-sized companies with their cybersecurity leadership. So just imagine a 40-person company, a 100-person company, a 200-person company, and you know, maybe maybe 200, but smaller ones, they're not going to hire a full-time CISO, right? So you're not going to hire a full-time CISO at a 40-person company. doesn't make sense. You're just trying to grow your business. But but oftentimes they, they have important data. They have some sort of financial thing. They they need help. They have the same needs as a larger company from a security standpoint. We come in and help them with their cybersecurity leadership, their plans, their policies, their risk assessments, um, you know, basically governance, risk, and compliance activities. And we help them grow their program and company so that, you know, at some point they can hire a full-time CISO and, uh, you know, as the company matures. From yeah. uh yeah, so from a from a burnout perspective, um, you know, we we see it from multiple sides actually. So one, you know, I a bunch of CISOs approach me and say, Hey, I'd like to be a virtual CISO. Um, and you know, they're assuming that, you know, the the burnout problems aren't gonna happen. Now, it is interesting because so, you know, so there's that. There's the, you know, we're sometimes we're in a client and things are going great, and then there's a change in leadership, and then you know, we just don't mesh and you know things things don't go great. Or um, we go in with a certain set of expectations, and we you know we set those expectations up front, but we get in there and you know something else happens. Um, in the case you know in the case where you know there's burnout because of mismatched expectations, you know difficult problem to solve. You either can get on the same page with senior leadership, or you can't get on the same page. And if you can't get on the same page, you know there's you know probably one course of action. Um, which is to not be there one way or the other, right? Um, so you're, the, telling, you're telling me the C, the CEO doesn't get fired because they don't do what the CISO wants? Well, you know, I don't I don't think it's about what the you know it really isn't about what the CISO wants. You know, the CISO's job is to reflect the cyber risk to senior management. Now, the frustrating part can be, you know, you don't have the authority to resolve certain things, but you're given the you know you're given the responsibility, but you're not really given the responsibility, or um, you know, yeah, 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 you know, we're, yeah, I, I get it, but like, I'd rather do these other things. Cool. Um, you know, but just don't come crying when something really bad happens and we're like, okay, but you know, like you made that business decision not to invest here and here we are. Um, the, you know, I, I can imagine being a CISO for a full-time CISO for a company and, you know, we, we, we have some former full-time CISOs, a lot of them, like, I just can't handle the, you know, don't like the pace, don't like you know, don't like all the things that fall on me. And, um, and then, you know, and then a lot of current CISOs come to us with the same type of thing. And, you know, and the problem is they don't have the authority to do things. You know, they are expected to solve all these problems. And, you know, and there's unreasonable expectations, like, you know, they're going on vacation and something bad happens. And of course it's them and only them that can help us that solve the problem. Um, you know, fortunately for us, actually, you know, we have, you know, fortunately, because we have a team of CISOs, we can actually right. manage that a little bit better, right? And 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 have a teammate step in when someone's on vacation. But, um, you know, when you're a full-time CISO and you have a small team, you know, might not be possible. Right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because there there was something I saw on Reddit the other day and I actually turned it into a LinkedIn post. It was uh, what, what I am perceiving to be a young, uh, hey, Rob, love your mug. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's so, fractional sea salt mug, and it's it's very big. It can hold a lot of liquid, so that's awesome. Well, that's that's good because we yeah we need security people need a lot of coffee. They but so in. so this young, I think it was the young person, basically was managing IR through a service provider. They had an SLA of you ready for this. 10 minutes to close an incident, not even to respond, to close. And it was one person 24-7. That's obviously that. going to work perfectly. And that's why I said this is why it went down, right? And it was actually, it was interesting because it's like the Reddit thread was all about who, like, who made these decisions. And I think it's a case where there's a lack of understanding. And I think you, you hit on the responsibility. And the way I always sort of talk about that is the CISO is held accountable for decisions that they don't actually get to make, right? So they go to the business and say, hey, we have a risk, we should do this. And the business says, well, what's the cheapest way we can get away with it? Well, we could do nothing. And the business says, okay, let's do that. And of course, something bad happens and the CISO is the one that gets fired, right? So yep, huge, huge issue. So um What's the and obviously I don't want you to breach any conversation. What's sure. the craziest story a former CISO ever told you about something that happened or didn't happen in their in their gigs? Um, you know, I think most of them probably roll, you know, or revolve around ethical, you know, ethic, you know, basically their boss asking them or telling them to say something that wasn't true, you know, basically, um, and and you know, and I think actually. If I'm remembering correctly, I want to say this is more than two cases where I've gotten this similar type of story, but you know where where you know essentially they resigned or you know it was some sort of negotiation that they got out of there because um, they did not want to work for someone who was going to do unethical things. Um, yeah. yeah. So I mean, it, it, you know, and 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 those are pretty tough. But you know, fortunately, I do think that's you know, you hear those stories because they're the exception or you remember those stories because they're the exception. It's not like they are the rule, right? right? I would say most business people are ethical. It's just the, you know, small percentage that that causes huge problems for the rest of us. Yeah. I mean, one of the challenges, uh, a, a former colleague and, and friend of mine at Gartner, Lee McMullen, uh, he and I were talking, he said, no CEO ever gets paid based on how well they manage cyber risk, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah, unless if you're running a cybersecurity co company, totally true. <laughs> Yeah, totally yeah. true. But you know, but the thing is, is that in 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 all fairness, to the CEO, the CEO sees risk all the time. So you know, they could have product risk. They could have, um, you know, they could have risk from you know key employees leaving. They could have risk from you know just just any one of them. You know, lawsuits from you know whatever past things. But um, cyber risk is just one of many risks, and it is on us in the cyber industry to explain risk in a way that the CEO saying something is a high risk is meaningless and like, okay, cool. It's high risk. But like, you know, if you're saying, Hey, there's a 20% chance of a $5 million loss. Cool. Okay. That, you know, that someone can attach to and like, okay, yeah, let me think that one through. Oh, actually, you know, I do want to address that. And oh, what the control is only a hundred thousand dollars. Let's spend money on that control and we can reduce that risk significantly. Cool. That makes perfect business sense. But you're not going to get that investment if you just say, "Oh, there's this high risk and this high risk and this high risk." I mean, that yeah. that's that's not a way to convince someone. You know, the CFO doesn't go to the uh, CEO and says, "Oh, we have high um, currency risk for exchange rate." You know, for other countries, right? He says, "Here are the numbers, right? And here's like the likelihood, and here's like past things, and like we need to, you know, we need to 
you know, do some other financial transaction to help mitigate it. So the CISO needs to do the same thing, you know, not with currency risk, but with cyber risk and explain it yeah. in a way that's consumable. Um, now, sometimes the CISO could do a great job explaining it and they still get a no. Fine. You know, if the buildings, if the business is willing to sign off, fine. Um, you know, I would say get it in writing if you really disagree. Um, yeah. You know, or at the very least, send an email, say, here's what, here, you know, here's the summary of our discussion. Now, that might not still keep you up at night, but at the very least, it doesn't, you know, you have that piece of paper should, you know, something bad happen and you can wave it in the air later. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I always share a story. So I, I, in a previous job, I worked for a, a company that may or may not have been run by someone who was very good friends with Snoop Dogg. But okay. um, we were using a company to develop our website. And um, they dropped a T1 right into the middle of my data center inside my firewall. And I'm like, I, this is not a good idea. So I get the guy on the phone and I say, hey, listen, um, I need to know where you're coming from, IP addresses, what ports are you using, where are you going? He's like, well, I don't know that. And I said, all right, well, you have 36 hours. And if you don't get it to me, I'm going to shut the connection down. And Rob, I hung the phone up and it didn't even finish vibrating in the, in the base before my CIO called me. And she was like, you can't shut that down. So I wrote up to your point, a little risk memo, took it up to the office. And I said, I need you to sign this. And she said, why? I said, because I don't want to get fired if somebody steals our, our data. And she was like, okay. Now, granted, this is 20 years ago. Right, right. You know, and you, you hit something I think that's so important that I really want to kind of expand on the whole high thing. And the way I always sort of say, look, if you're a CISO and you go to your boss and say, I need $5 million. And they say, well, what, what happens if I don't give you the $5 million? If your answer is, well, I think something real bad might happen. They're not giving you the money. Because they can give the money to sales and they know they're going to get right. sales or marketing. Right. And, and so how do you... So with your your offer, right? So you you're putting someone in an environment where they they're not full time employees. Sure. How do they effectively communicate that when they're potentially viewed as outsiders? I think there's probably pros and cons to that. So how do yeah, you tell uh, those stories? So yeah, so I think one advantage with us specifically is we are in our sales process. We're really deliberate about about what expectations they should have of us. Who we're reporting to? You know, we're typically reporting to the CTO, but sometimes the CEO, sometimes CIO, COO, CFO. So, you know, certainly reporting in, even as a contractor, to a high-level person. Um, in our in our statement of work, we say the number one thing we need is executive sponsorship. You know, basically, like we're not going to be successful without that. And so the organization that we're coming into, so first, you know, imagine it's a 200 person company. It's not like, you know, everyone knows everyone or close to, and they know that we're reporting to a senior person. That's an important thing. And, you know, we're helping to draw, you know, typically we're helping to solve a problem for them. Like, you know, we're not doing a lot of esoteric security things. It's usually like, you know, clearly this is very risky activity or clearly sales are being inhibited because, the organization doesn't have a mature security program, right? So, so we're doing things that are, I would say, are pretty measurable by the client. So I do think that gives us an advantage that might not be the case when you work for a big company and there's a million things going on. This is just one more thing that you have to do. Um, we are also, I would say, very, one other thing is we're very cognizant of the business impact. And we'll say all the time, like, I don't, you know, this is the security thing that I would recommend, but I don't recommend it because the business impact is too high. You know, instead we should do this other thing, but you're, you are undertaking this risk in between. Um, and as long as the client understands that and we have a mature discussion around it, you know, 
Um, we have not been, you know, <laughs> knock on wood, we haven't been burned by that yet. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think there are some lessons to be taken from that for internal CISOs as well, or, or whether it's a CISO, somebody that runs a security program, I think chief risk officers, uh, you know, we see like risk CTOs. And, and I think that you can absolutely take that as a, a lesson learned. I, I always sort of talk about it as a, as a trade-off, right? We're never going to get to zero risk. Right, because that's not practical. How close do you want to get, and how much money are you willing to spend? And I think there's there's one of my hands in the camera. So I think it's it's that that trade off. And I think that your your approach, I think, is very leverageable. I think even in larger uh, environments. And I think we tend not to do a great job yeah. of having that conversation. The the you know the interesting thing though is in terms of the um, larger environment, you may have moved your way up in the org, you may have been brought in with the past senior management. The agreements that we have with the folks that we're reporting to are probably not a little bit different if you're full-time, a little bit different if you didn't explicitly have that conversation. I mean, sometimes you're being offered the job and you don't want to say, oh, you know, but I, you know, these are the terms, you know, we're literally giving you a statement of work, like here's, you know, right. here are the things that you're going to sign off on. You know, an employee doesn't really do that. So unless if they're very mature about it and maybe, you know, been a CISO before and see where the pitfalls are, I think it's probably a challenging thing like, hey, I'm going to take this job, but I need A, B, and C out of you. That's probably a small percentage of CISOs that are making those demands, you know, especially first time CISOs, probably a small percentage of them making those demands um, to start. Yeah. So, so based on that, and I agree with you uh, 100%. Like I can't tell. Like I talk. I have a lot of people in my network who come to me and say, "Hey, I'm working on this job. What do you think? Where does it report?" And they go, "I don't know." Yeah. Well, that's a pretty important thing to know because if you're a CISO reporting to the director of network operations, it's a very different job than if you're a CISO reporting to a CFO or or a COO. So no, I, I think I, I agree. Things, yeah, yeah, we. Yeah, yeah. One of our one of our you know, clients, I think has some challenging report, you know, most of them, it's most of them, it's, it's like super straightforward. It's like CTO report, you know, CTO, often founder CTO, even we're reporting to them. They have a lot of juice, you know, it's like this, the, and, and they want us to solve their security problems. They brought us in. So, you know, I would say we kind of minimize that just structurally with the way we do business, but that's not to say that, you know, we do have some cases where, you know, there is a challenging reporting environment. And, you know, the funny part is it's not the work, it's that that takes up a lot of your time thinking things through and how do you, how do you break out of that? How do you convince this other group to do the right thing? Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing I think that that's a problem too, right? If you, if, if email goes down, everybody knows right away, but if there's a security yeah. problem, you don't know right away most of the time. Most people are not directly impacted and it becomes very easy to sort of deprioritize those things because they're not super visible. And then I, I think there's always the, the, well, it happened to them, it won't happen to us kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, it will happen to them, it won't happen to us. I mean, from a metric standpoint, if you're the, if you're the head of sales, right? There's a revenue metric that's super right. clear. Like you can keep score very easily. You know, if you're head of marketing, maybe less so, but maybe like number of leads or, you know, or, you know, you can do some of these measurements of impressions, that sort of thing. Um, you know, if you're the CFO, what's the bottom line, you know, there's like, there's measurements everywhere for the CISO. What are the metrics and what kind of visuals do you have to convince others? And, you know, to your point, even the CIO, right? Like, 
email is down, that would be a bad thing or, you know, or whatever, some systems down, right? That's it's like, oh, uptime is here. Cool. CISO is like no known incidents or maybe, maybe some known incidents, but we got it handled pretty well. Like, you know, super, super fuzzy, um, super fuzzy. So, you know, developing metrics, I do think is useful. We use a quantitative risk methodology for um, explaining risks. Now, it is self-scored. Um, you know, it's not like we're scoring to a standard, but we're doing our best to measure based on dollars and probability, which is something, you know, it, it, is, it, is a, it is a start. I know, you know, for you guys, you know, you actually include like some uh, black height, you include fair in, in the tool. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a great example. Um, we actually don't, so, so we're, we're a black eye customer. We don't actually, we don't actually use that part of the tool, but the thing is, but, but the thing is all our use case is probably different than most of your, most of your customers. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. but, but, um, you know, I could see people using that either, either as part of a calculation or, you know, potentially using it specifically for, um, certain vendors, but you can also do it for yourself, right? I mean, not through black eye, but just in general fair, you can do it for yourself. Of course, you gotta be a probably billion dollar plus organization to use fair. There are other um, risk scoring methodologies. We we are largely based on how to measure anything in cybersecurity risk, which is another methodology. Um, uh, you but, know what? I love I love his stuff. <laughs> Doug, but, Doug but, but the thing is, but this is the not the norm. It's like you know we're explaining it for the first time. Like people like get it when we explain it, but this is not the norm. You know, other VCSOs out there, other CISOs out there, that's not the standard. They're not typically doing it. Um, and I'm not saying the methodology we use is the right one. I'm just saying, you know, there should be some quantifiable metric that the cyber community is using to help um, explain risk. Um, and I yeah. do think that would serve us way better as an industry. And some of these challenges would be reduced. Yeah. I mean, I, I was on a, I did a, a, a breakfast thing today on cyber insurance and um, someone said, well, are the insurance companies using a framework? And I said, well, what I've seen is, they're all using some customized version of an existing framework and they're all using different approaches, which makes it really, really difficult. And that's why like we've taken that standards-based approach and it sounds like you are do doing something similar within your, your domain. And I think you're right. It doesn't need to be perfect. When I was in consulting years ago, I had a, a consulting manager who said, let's, let's get the thing round enough to roll, right? It doesn't have to be perfect. Perfect is the enemy of good. You know, we could, you have all these different things. And I think that's really, really important for CISOs and, and maybe people who want to be CISOs in the future to recognize if you, if you want everything to be precise and accurate, you're going to fail because if you go in front of your board or your CEO and say, we have $1,319,256.33.333 in risk, they don't believe you because the CFO doesn't do that, right? No, nobody has that level of, well, of confidence. Yeah, I mean, we would not. We we would say you have fifteen million dollars of of risk here, and here's here are our key assumptions. We would not we would not give you the three point nine 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 uh, bit. But that's um, that's what a lot of tools put out there. And when I was well, at Garden, yeah, one of those tools, I go, you yeah. need to round this to like yeah, the nearest five hundred thousand dollars. Right, but right, yeah, it's, we're, it's we're direct, the tool. The tool is directionally showing you the risk. You know, back to the the cyber insurance. You know the reason there's not a standard is there's not a philosophical agreement on on what should be done. And you know, yeah. looking at all of our client cyber insurance policies, premiums have gone up and up. Like all the questions that are coming have changed. You know, it feels like 
they are looking for the right right solution. I do think just from as from an outsider's perspective, it looks like they're they're honing in a little bit better than they were five years ago. Um, but yeah, you know, but but I mean, they're underwriting some things that you know, who knows? I mean, th- there could be some catastrophic event that that sinks them all. Yeah, and and the one thing that I started to hear, and a, a good friend of mine is uh, he's a partner at uh, a insurance brokerage out in the Bay Area, Woodruff Sawyer, and they're they're actually very very well respected within cyber insurance. Um, he says, actually, the premiums are now starting to level and come down because uh, yeah. they've nailed down what's good and what's not good. Or, well, not nailed down, but getting closer at least. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've seen the come, well, come down might be relative, but I, I would say uh, we've seen them level off for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but, um, you know, it's, it, Every year for renewals, it's the wild, wild west. It's not like the year before. Yeah. And and the other thing we're seeing too is the, the amount of coverage they'll write for you is dropping. So we've we've yeah. definitely yeah, we've definitely seen that. And then the sublimits are have taken off and the uh exceptions have taken off. Yeah. So and well, I think there, there was one big case that settled not that long ago, the Mondelez case, right? They got hit by Napetia. The yeah. insurance company said, we're not paying because it's state-sponsored. The court said, well, you can't do that. But now what's happening is we're starting to see policy being written with specific exemptions. Right? So, yeah, Lloyds of London, basically everyone who's yep. in that pool, which is a lot of insurance companies, they are not allowed to underwrite for a state actor. Uh, you know, it's going to be interesting on the proof side but they're not allowed to underwrite for state actor stuff so now that's an exclusion um you know yeah the, you know it, it'll be interesting to see because the next not petcha um you know 10 you know 10 billion dollar hit industry-wide um who yeah. knows yeah, i mean that that's that's going to be something yeah and and i think one of the biggest differences too is you know if you're writing flood insurance and you write flood insurance all across the united states you're not getting a flood everywhere in the United States, right? Hurricane hits in Florida. You're probably not paying in California. So there's a balancing of the risk. But with the cyber attacks, there's no geographical boundaries, right? Mo- like Move It is a great example. We are seeing a dozen, two dozen companies every single day reporting they're getting hit by that. Well, they're all over the world and the insurance companies are are paying that. It's um, I right. do not want to be an insurance underwriter. Let's well, I wouldn't want to be one anyway, but I definitely wouldn't want to be one now <laughs> because of of all those exposures. And you know, I live down in Florida. There are a bunch of insurance companies that are pulling out of Florida because they're getting killed on flood insurance because we've had I mean thankfully I'm on the East Coast and we haven't really been hit in the last 10 years. But the West Coast is getting destroyed. A friend of mine was just in Fort Myers from the storm from eight weeks ago and it's like a disaster area still buildings are down i mean it's yeah it's um but it was it was there was a lot of interesting conversation about how people are negotiating uh about how people are buying coverage and i I asked them a very simple question i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this i say people why are you buying cyber insurance like what do you they give you five million dollars what are you doing with the money and no one really had an answer you know so I think it depends on who you are. My assertion is cyber insurance is a cybersecurity control. It's not just a risk transfer because, okay, so one, the cyber insurance company is providing a bunch of tools for companies to use. They have, you know, you can log, typically log into the portal and you can get a lot of those tools. They often have uh, 
internet facing, you know, just you know, like Black Kite, that's looking at your site and can provide feedback. They have the uh, attorneys and the and the coaches for an incident, um, and they have the panel. You know, basically, here are some panel providers with pre-negotiated rates. Um, so, as a as a cybersecurity control, I think it's a good control. Additionally, you know, you get paid back the money. Oh, and the one other thing is some customers require that you have cyber insurance. So, so, oh, and actually, hold on. I even forgot the one other thing. The fact that you made it in and were approved for the policy that you made it through the form means that you have a, your, yeah. your, your security program is not at the bottom. You know, it might not be right. at the top, but it's not at the bottom. So I think there's a lot of goodness, you know, and, and I don't know why necessarily you, you'd get you know, a huge cyber insurance policy, but at the very least getting a $5 million policy. I mean, that makes, that makes total sense to me. Yeah. There, there was a company I spoke with maybe two years ago, maybe a little longer, and they bought a cyber insurance policy and they were going to do one thing with the money. They were going to pay postage for notification yep. because they had had a breach a couple of years earlier and they had a $3 million postage bill and no one wanted to write the check. Of course. So they literally said, we bought this just to pay for the postage. And when I shared that this morning, people were like, like, oh, we did because I think people don't know why they're buying what are we gonna do with the money? You gonna well, pay your fines, you're gonna do postmortem. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think in terms of the actual money piece, um, there's plenty of useful things. Like, you know, if you if you bring an incident remediator to go through things, that bill is probably at least six digits, or you know, probably has yeah. six digits, right? Easily. So yeah, so I mean, there's that, there's you know, I don't know, the, the, the postage, I mean, there's the postage, there's all those other things. Um, you know, the other thing is um, the cyber insurance lawyer is the one that def is defending in court. You get, uh, you know, you, you get someone that's backstopping you. It's not your attorney. Well, I mean, it, it is your attorney too. But, but the point is, is that there's a whole infrastructure behind you. If you don't have cyber insurance. Um, and if it's not some reasonable amount of money, I mean, if you have cyber insurance for pittance, the cyber insurance company won't defend you. They'll just say, okay, we'll pay the bill. Let's move on. But if you have $5 right. million, well, dollars, I'm going to say- Totaling the car. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Awesome. All right. So let's kind of go back to where we started, right? Which was sure. the, the CISO challenge, CISO, CISO burnout. Yeah. Um, there, there was an article that came out, you know, we've heard a lot of discussion around SEC regulation, around cyber expertise at the board, and what do they know, what do they need to know. And one of the things that I kind of postulated was that the blame doesn't fit in one place. I think boards need to learn to ask better questions. I think CISOs need to be able to tell better stories that, to your point, are business resonant. And business leaders need to start treating cyber risk like they treat all the other risks like you talked earlier about credit risk market risk you know currency risk i think right now cybersecurity is treated separately and i've always said cybersecurity may be small but it has an outsized impact you get hit with a breach you can't pay your bills you get hit with a breach you can't manufacture products you get hit with ransomware you're down for a week people are coming after you so suppose someone came to you and said rob you're a smart guy. You've been a CISO. You manage CISOs. I have a new job. I am reporting to the CEO. They told me I can hire as many people as I want and as much money as I want. What should I do? Um, okay, so that's an interesting question, and I'm sure that happens all the time. Um, well, you know, I think reporting the CEO, presumably the CEO wants that. That's you know, that's a good thing. You know, hire whoever you want. I would say still be circumspect. Build build good plans. Um, 
uh, you know, so, I mean, what we would do and what I, I would think most people would do, you want to go in and really understand the environment, understand what are the challenges, what assets are you protecting, you know, what's what's there and what needs to be there. Um, I don't know that I would go in with a hiring plan. I think it would go in with an open mind and a, a curious nature to try to figure out all the pieces um, and then hire hire to and, you know, build and bring in controls that that meet the risk profile of the organization and they can help protect the assets. Um, you know, that by the way, would be a very unusual situation. More likely here you are, there's a desk and a computer. Good luck. <laughs> I think we need to get someplace. Well, if, if you remember, I, you know, you probably do when HIPAA first hit, right? What we heard from a lot of people was the boss would go, Hey, you in the red shirt, you don't look like you're too busy. You're a tech guy, right? You're now on CISO. And by the way, you have no money, so go be good. And a lot of people got got called to, to task for that, right? But I think it's interesting you mentioned you don't go in with a hiring plan and you start with sort of what assets do you have. And I, I, I'm going to sort of add something to that. What do we do for a living? I think a lot of CISOs don't know what the business's reason for existence is. I've reviewed a lot of board decks for CISOs, and I'm sure you've reviewed and done a bunch and very few of them actually have business goals in there. And when I tell the CISO that, you know what they always say? Well, the board knows. Yes. But they don't know you do. So you have to tell them, here's how we make money. And right. it's amazing what, what, um, how much more success they get once you start having that conversation. And I tell people all the time, look at, look at your About Us page, right? Do you, are, is there a mission, a vision, yeah, values? Um, I used to do a lot of traveling into like uh, the UAE and, and countries in that region. And almost all of them, when you walk out of the elevator, there was a big board. And in multiple languages, it had a vision statement, a mission statement, values, objectives for that organization, that agency. And I, we just don't see that. And the best example I use in the U.S. is Wawa, right? The gas and convenience store. In every one of their sites, they have six brass discs on the wall that talk about corporate values. And the security team follows those corporate values. Mm. Finance follows those corporate values. And I think that, to your point that you made earlier, is there's a disconnect between the risk piece and, and the business piece. And it's... It's getting better, but it's still, I think we still have such a huge way to go. I mean, I like, I like tying, we're implementing these set of controls, you know, here's the business objective is this business objective that you've laid out. And here's how we're going to help meet it. Because if the systems are down because of a DDoS attack, you know, as a, for instance, you know, mm -hmm. no one's going to get to use the service. So here are the controls we need to put in place or, okay. or yeah, we're going to take in all this data and here's how we're going to give confidence to our customers that we're protecting it. We're going to put these controls in. Um, yeah, and I, I do think it's actually, you know, probably simpler. It's simpler, but yes, less simple. Um, you know, the, the slide should be simpler. The slide should have like three points or five points, but you know, today's slide has a lot of points. Um, probably, yeah. uh, or, or the ones I've seen have a lot of points. Uh, every yeah. security presentation I, uh, conference I go to, I see the slides with like you know, a million points. And obviously, if you didn't get it on the slide, it's not important. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so, you know, I, I've been on stage for a long time, and I am definitely moving toward the Steve Jobs approach, right? Which is let's put a picture on a screen and let's use it to build a, a conversation. And I've actually been rebuilding a lot of my deck using Midjourney. I basically put an idea into Midjourney, 
and it, the images, like that's it. I never could have created that on my own. So, all right. That, that's, so, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll actually send you. I just, I just redid my AI deck using AI. Now, nice. to be fair, I did steal the idea from the CISO of Mandiant. Uh, he was at a conference I did in, in Minneapolis. Uh, and, uh, well, and I that's why you go to it. conferences, though, right? To pick up exactly. good ideas so, like that. Yeah. Learn. Like uh, that. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll revisit that now. So, all right. So we have covered a tremendous amount of ground as we typically do on Risk and Reels, which is why I have people like you on because we can do that. So let's kind of do a little bit of a recap. So um, biggest disappointment of a movie for Rob, it was Ready Player One, and I'm totally on board with that. For me, it was The Dark Tower, Idris, Idris Elba, I love you, Matthew McConaughey, not a good movie. Um, <laughs> talking about CISO burnout, you know, reporting structure is definitely important. Uh, but having responsibility for decision-making and, and being able to engage with business stakeholders, um, move away from high, medium, low for risk scoring because no one's ever given you money for that. Um, and if you had all the money and all the people in the world, do not go in with a hiring plan. Anything else I missed, Rob? Uh, no, I think that's I think that's great. You know, to me, uh, the last point we are just making and, and tying back to the uh, risk models, communicating business language using simple uh, simple communication points uh, can can really have a lot of persuasive effects. Uh, and I found that the more I've done to the, maybe maybe not the Steve Jobs model with just the picture, but just a few simple points and then talking to those points can really capture people's imagination versus putting a million things on a slide. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, let's face it, right? C-level executives are big picture people. They're not really interested in 57 bullets. So they trust you have the details already. You don't, you, uh, you don't... And, and I, hope, <laughs> I hope they are correct. All right, Rob, uh, it was a pleasure getting to know you. Uh, this was terrific. There was a lot of, of great guidance out there. Um, so take a look at Fractional CISO. They provide a great service for small and mid-sized enterprises. Show the mug again. All right, there you go. Uh, talk to Rob. He's got a great team behind him. Also, check out Rob on LinkedIn. He, he puts some really cool stuff up. And um, if you go back far enough, you will actually see Rob wearing a wig. I didn't make him wear I have a wig. I have a few of those. <laughs> all right. Uh, so thanks again, Rob. Appreciate it. Uh, for all those listeners out there, stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure. Wheatman out. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.